Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today, we're going to continue our series on Who Am I by discussing the topic of shame. This series has explored some of the things that make us, well, us, and indeed has also looked at kind of the dark side of some of the positive experiences that we've been exploring here. So I'm joined today, as always, by Dr. Rick Hansen. How you doing? I'm good. I'm glad to be here. Great. Yeah. So I think this is going to be a really interesting episode because shame is such a persistent and powerful experience that we all have. And as a sort of lead into it, I want to offer kind of a blanket trigger warning on this episode before we get into it, because experiences related to shame often touch on some of the darker experiences that we can have as people. This is particularly true when it comes to experiences that may have happened earlier in childhood. So if you know that you're susceptible to these sorts of feelings, then this is one to kind of proceed with caution, treat yourself carefully, and all of that assorted good stuff. So I just wanted to offer that as an initial framing kind of warning for this before we kind of dive into some of the content of the episode itself. So there you go. In order to frame this conversation as a whole, we use a word like shame in a very general, broad, blanket kind of way. Is there a more sort of operational definition that you would offer here for it? Yeah, I think it's useful to distinguish four things, and we can talk about all of them, especially two in particular. Mm -hmm. So guilt is the sense of falling short of some standard. It tends to have a fairly conceptual aspect to it. Remorse is the sense of falling short of some standard with a feeling that one ought to repair or make amends Mm, or somehow mm -hmm. correct it. Third, shame is a sense that there's something wrong with you. In other words, it's not just that you did wrong, but you are wrong. You are bad. Mm. A very often associated feelings of a kind of a crippling sense of worthlessness and an impulse to hide or to move away. And then there is inadequacy, the sense that you're somehow less than other people, you're not as good as they are, you're inferior and inferiority complex, so-called. These things overlap each other, and I'm not trying to be semantic here. I'm just trying to distinguish among them so that, for example, we can be clear that there's a place for healthy standards and healthy morality and, and guilt when we fall short of appropriate standards. There's also a place for healthy remorse where we have a sense to ourselves, ouch, I did something wrong there. Mm -hmm. Whoa, I should feel bad about it. Not that I'm a bad and irredeemably bad person, but I should feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. And I should be moved to repair, to correct, to admit my fault, even to ask for forgiveness if it's appropriate. That's really different from a crippling sense that there is something terribly broken deep down in the core of your being, the shame. And it's also different from a nagging feeling in the back of your awareness, in the back of your mind, that you're just not as good as other people. And therefore you have to constantly impress them or prove yourself to them or hit a home run every hour of every day. Before we go any farther, I I wanna call out the work of Professor Paul Gilbert Mm -hmm. that uh, we've uh, presented as one of these podcasts along the way. He's done fantastic work on the origins of shame in early childhood especially, and developed what's called compassion-focused therapy about that. So I really invite you to look into Dr. Gilbert's work. Um, He locates shame in a larger perspective of evolutionary neuropsychology, social 
evolutionary psychology, and it's really wonderful material. So I just want to really acknowledge that. So to touch on some of that work or maybe related research, is there variation in people in terms of how shame, how susceptible they are to experiences of shame? And also, where does shame come from? This is such an interesting question. So I was reflecting the other day about how there's normal temperamental variation in being innately anxious or vulnerable to anxiety. And you can see this in even young children. There's also temperamental variation in uh, the tendency to be angry, to be irritable. And there's temperamental variation in the tendency to be sad or melancholy, even depressed. So we have subgroups in the human population, the human tribe that are just more prone toward anxiety or anger Mm. or sadness. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that I can't think of any kind of research on innate heritable, in other words, genetically based subgroups that are particularly prone to shame. And that raises a lot of really interesting questions. So I want to use that as kind of a segue into talking about the science essentially on how shame arose. So if you think about it, shame and related experiences such as remorse or guilt or feelings of inadequacy is a very social emotion, a social experience. Uh, There's some other aspects of that that could be called embarrassment or being exposed to other people. And these are not emotions that are shared, particularly by other animals. I mean, it is said that, for example, dogs can look look a little abashed if you scold them. There are rituals of appeasement and abasement and, and managing what seems like very primitive forms of shame in primates like in chimpanzees or gorillas or orangutans. But in general, it's really only humans who have this deeply developed architecture of a conscience and guilt and feeling that there's something tainted or or improper or bad about themselves. Mm -hmm. Why would that be? Why would that be? And so the notion is that as um, in the last several million years, the human brain tripled in volume And the survival advantages of being really good at different aspects of relationship, such as language and empathy and forms of bonding with others, it also seemed that it promoted the survival of the band and others with whom individuals shared kin, and maybe even the survival of individuals to have a growing capacity for shame. And you can just imagine how that Mm, might work mm -hmm. in a hunter-gatherer band living together their whole lives. Uh, It's really important to know that the people you're with are not going to be freeloaders. They're not going to just rip you off. And you need to get a a sense that you can trust them. Mm -hmm. And part of what enables you to trust them is the evolution of shame if they do something bad to you. Yeah. Otherwise, how can you cooperate with them in the future? You can't really trust them very well, especially over longer periods of time that you can remember. Again, as the brain evolved, Compared to our nearest ancestors, chimpanzees, humans have a tremendously improved capability to do so-called mental time travel, to recall the past and rewind and rewind and reflect on episodes in the past when, let's suppose, somebody in the tribe betrayed you. And also, humans are able to project into the future with mental time travel and imagine how that person may betray you again if they ask you for the banana or cheat on you sexually. A fair amount of shame is also related to sexuality. And to know that your partner would be ashamed of cheating on you would make you more willing to partner with them 
so that you know that your genes, Mm -hmm. not somebody else's genes, are going to be passed down the generations. Mm -hmm. So you see the evolution of shame. And it just struck me, a theory that there's no science on it that I'm aware of. It's really an interesting territory that unlike fear or sadness or anger, in which it was useful for, you know, a minority, a subgroup, less than half, let's say a quarter or a tenth or less of the members of the tribe to be particularly prone to fear or anger or sadness, there was no particular value in having only a few members of the tribe prone to shame and guilt and remorse. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it was really important for everybody in the tribe Mm -hmm. to be very vulnerable to those kinds of experiences, very available, let's say, to those kinds of experiences. So in fact, distinct from subgroups related to fear, anger, and sadness, maybe the actual subgroup in terms of shame are the sociopaths. Yeah, so So, point to that sociopathy and related kind of immunity to shame driving people to take actions that are occasionally profoundly inappropriate, not just in terms of our social construction, but in terms of actually doing real harm to other people. Yeah, maybe it was adaptive. I mean, people have speculated this way. We have to be careful about telling stories from evolution, but maybe it was adaptive, honestly. In hunter-gatherer bands averaging around 40 or so or 50 members, Mm -hmm. that uh, there were one or two sociopaths dropped in, especially when it came time to competing with other bands Mm. for scarce resources. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting historical narrative or evolutionary narrative. And there are are a lot of ways in which the research might support one viewpoint or not. Uh, But I think that you can definitely paint a very interesting picture of how these feelings might develop. And just as they develop inside of us as a species on a on a fundamental underlying, as you said, hereditary basis. Yeah. They have to then develop in us as we are placed into this world as young children. So we were speaking before about how a lot of shaming experiences enter our, our world mm-hmm. as we are children. I was wondering yeah. if you could speak to that a little bit. It's a it's a really important territory. And there are, let's say, normal range challenges to healthy Mm -hmm. self-worth and normal range factors of shame. Mm -hmm. And then there are extremes that get into the territory of abuse. Mm -hmm. And this is where a trigger warning again is probably appropriately offered. So in terms of normal range, if you think about it, a human infant is the most, uh, is profoundly dependent. The human infancy is the longest of any kind of species, other, all the species on the planet. Uh, During that period of dependency, which we all went through, those of us listening to this podcast or making it, all went through a period of infancy in which we were enormously dependent on the care of our caregivers. So we needed to matter to them and our signals of distress Mm. need Mm -hmm. or desire uh, needed to matter to them as well. What happens in early childhood, and there's a lot of research on this, is that if for various reasons, Let's suppose a child has normal range needs, or let's suppose the child was born a month or two premature, or is colicky, or has some other kind of issue. So that child has normal needs except toward the high end of that range of normal needs. For whatever the reason, then let's also suppose that in that child's environment, there are breakdowns in delivering the goods to the child, in being emotionally available to the infant, uh, reading the infant's needs and wants accurately, 
not being so stressed out as a parent or other caregiver that you just can't mobilize to respond to the needs, or maybe and not being also so drawn into other issues like another child who's really, really sick at death's door, or a breakdown in relationships, or the impact of poverty, or health issues in the parent oneself, for whatever reason. Or maybe this parent was just not ready to have kids and suddenly they did. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, fathers as well as mothers If the parent is not being sensitive and available and responsive and skillful and loving and nurturing and not inappropriate, almost all of the time with that infant or toddler, there will be harmful consequences. And parents don't need to be perfect. It's okay to be quote unquote good enough, but good enough so as not to injure your child is a pretty high bar. And that high bar was enabled throughout almost all of human history by having a village to raise a child because it takes a village to raise a child as the African proverb says. So that is why today in particular, I think many, many people are entering adulthood with an interior deep down inside or the roots of their own psyche Mm. that has a lot of leftover shame experiences deeply embedded in the memory of the person. And that memory, let's be clear, is unconscious mm-hmm. and somatic and kind of strange mm-hmm. and casts a haunting shadow. You don't know why, yeah. but then you, you suddenly feel like a bad person in certain situations. So I think that we might intuitively kind of sense what you mean here. I, I've certainly had experiences similar to the ones you're describing where you don't really do something that's that bad in the grand scheme of things, but man, it just hits you like yeah. a hammer for whatever that's reason. Right. That's right. But could you kind of describe a little bit more concretely yeah. what vulnerability to shame might look like and what might create a shame vulnerability? Yeah. And again, what I mean by vulnerability, I'm really speaking here of impact. So I'm yeah. talking about shame impact, shame injuries. Great. Let's just call it that, shame mm-hmm. injuries. And for those who've never raised an infant, like Mm -hmm. you, for example, for us and many people, it's kind of hard sometimes to really appreciate how relentless the demands of a young Mm -hmm. child are. Mm -hmm. They can't walk. You have to carry them. They can't be fed. They can't feed themselves. You have to feed them. When they start being able to communicate with you, oftentimes they're upset, they're hurt, they're fussy, they're angry. The cry of of an infant is penetrating. It's designed to be penetrating. I once read a science fiction story that the, and the element in it, I still remember to this day, was the notion of creating an alarm clock that had the sound of an infant crying. Because you cannot sleep through the sound of an infant crying mm. unless you're really, really drugged, for example. So we're very affected as a as adults, as caregivers by by the kids, and it's easy to get angry at them. It's also easy to just tune them out or just not be available and not realize how vulnerable they are. So hundreds of times a day, typically, an infant or toddler or preschooler places a demand on a caregiver or communicates a request of some kind, has a need. Hundreds of little episodes that typically last less than a minute, often a few seconds in length. And what happens again and again and again when that infant, toddler, or preschooler is in pain or uncomfortable or needs a diaper change or is hungry or is lonely or just doesn't know what to do or is crying for any reason whatsoever or wants something or is trying to do something. And what happens in that moment is very consequential hundreds of times a day. 
and the slow accumulation of the proportion of those episodes that go well or badly really, really adds up over time. Mm -hmm. So if a child is simply neglected, in other words, the parent is not punishing or horrible, not yelling, not hitting, but still not tuned in, not tracking the needs of the child or tuning the kid out as some parents do, or it's not emotionally available for the child for whatever reason. Well, the child starts feeling, wow, you don't hear me. I don't exist for you. I'm not even in your world. And it's a short hop. It's not a conceptual hop. It's more like a feeling or a body sensation that gradually becomes the basis for beliefs that start coming in around ages one, two, three, and beyond. But the sense starts to develop, wow, if I don't matter enough to you to keep me in your mind, to hold me in your heart, there must be something wrong with me. And then if a parent is not just neglectful, let's say, but punishing, shaming, bad girl, bad boy, naughty, dirty, sinful, or anything like that, if, if let alone, if the, I'll get to frankly abuse in a minute here, but if the parent is harshly punitive, that really adds to the sense inside the child that, wow, I guess I'm just don't matter. Or if I do matter at all to you, I need to purchase it at the price of conformity and mm. extremes of obedience and meeting standards. So my my worth then is is only conditional. It's it's always dependent upon your approval or meeting some kind of standards you set for me. And that is a really difficult thing to bear. And then very often what will happen in adulthood or teenagers, people will react to that, especially if they've been um, on the receiving end of punishment, not just neglect, and uh, lots of punishment, inappropriate punishment. And at a certain point, the kid basically says, I can't please you, I can't make you happy, or if I could make you happy, but the, at the cost of selling my soul, at the cost of not being who I am, to heck with you in one term or another, and I'm just gonna go my own way. And which is a really, really difficult crossroads to recover from uh, if you're raising a teenager. So best to prevent that in the first place. So you've referred to cases where a parent is pretty good, but normal. And you've referred to cases where a parent is somewhat punishing, but not inappropriate. And, and somewhat neglectful. And, or... and somewhat neglectful. How about cases that run to a further end of the extreme? Because it's an unfortunate reality that there, there is a lot of abuse that takes place inside of a family circle. Yeah, one of the things that can happen, whether it's in the circle of the family or with a trusted coach, priest, religious teacher, older stepbrother, something like that, cousin, is that one of the common results of uh, sexual abuse is that the person who is abused, mm. who's the victim in an honorable sense here, who's innocent, often ends up feeling ashamed of themselves for what others did to them, even though it is the others who should be ashamed of themselves. And that's an extra double whammy that can occur. And it's, it's interesting how it actually happens. Sometimes there's a, just a sense of extension, you know, that, that as a child forced into a quote unquote dirty act that the dirt is stuck to you, mm. dirtied by the act. I mm -hmm. worked with people who felt that they were tainted or stained deep down inside themselves. And a part of the healing journey, which I, I, I know we'll get to soon, 
is to realize that there's nothing wrong with you. And actually, you don't need to feel stained. And there are things you can do to to reclaim that primal sense of innocence and goodness inside yourself. But this territory is really important for people to be aware of. And I think while there are pitfalls in what's called so-called recovered memory syndrome that are problematic where people start to think that something happened to them when they were young that didn't really happen, Mm. that said, there are many cases where things happen to children either before they're old enough to form memories, before their, let's say, third or fourth birthday, or they suppressed at the time or just too creepy, they put out of mind, and yet kind of haunt them still. Mm. And deep down in somatic or emotional memory. And so anyway, that's one of the kind of third major ways, in addition to neglect or uh, excessive punishment that can lead adults mm-hmm. to to have a, a, a sense of shame that they carry with themselves. Yeah. So what are some of the consequences of that sense of shame in adulthood? Yeah. I, I'm going to add in here the feeling of inadequacy as well, because mm. sometimes it kind of goes together for myself. And I've talked about this in the podcast my parents, for different reasons, were not very good at attunement and empathy. And then for other reasons, because I was young going through school, I felt like an outsider a lot who was unwanted and unseen. So that accumulated not to feelings of shame inside me, which is kind of interesting, or guilt, but definitely feelings of inadequacy, Hmm. of not really being as worthy as others and not being valued, let's say. Okay, so here you are as an adult, feeling uh, you know, that you've been, let's say you're carrying, let's call them shame injuries. Let's say you're carrying feelings of inadequacy. How might that show up, right? That's what you're getting at. Uh, one way it shows up is that beneath the surface that can often be well put together and polished, there's an underlying sense of just not being a good person mm-hmm. or ever good enough, no matter what. And sometimes you can infer from the effort to polish the persona Mm. in other people Mm -hmm. or oneself that there's an underlying blemish, let's say, that the person is trying to push away or cover over, even unconsciously. And that's one. Another uh, is when people start to move into self-expression, and they find themselves feeling almost muzzled or sleepy or as if they're trying to move through mud in expressing themselves, that can also be because that they're carrying a shame injury with them. Mm. That Because a lot of what happens when around a shame injury is that the child's uh, attempts to protest or to point the finger at what was done to them are also punished and attacked or mm-hmm. suppressed. So in, in that suppression and, and attack can be internalized. And then the last thing that can happen, I think is a clue, is that I think, as you said earlier, you can be in situations where rationally, you know, you just didn't do that horrible th- thing, right? Maybe you snuck a third cookie or maybe you crossed a line that was really ambiguous, really in your sexual behavior or romantic life or Maybe you had some thoughts arising in your head, right? Thoughts arise in the head, but oh, there's a really, really strong reaction to it, mm-hmm. way over the top, out of proportion to what you really, really did or, or what your, your friends even are saying, hey, you know, okay, learn the lesson, don't do it again, but that really wasn't that horrible. Uh, and yet, oh, you still feel really horrible. Uh-huh. And that's a clue 
of some kind of internalization of shame. I want to add one more source of shame really fast. It's important here, which is feeling that somehow a bad thing that happened was your fault when yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. There's a lot of research, for example, on kids who have a depressed parent and they're not able to save their parent or cheer their parent up, or they have an alcoholic parent and somehow they're not able to get their parent to stop drinking. Uh, or maybe they've got a sibling or in their, they're in school situations and they have a very strong sense of vicarious embarrassment. Like they're really embarrassed for the sake of others and they, and they want to change it for the better, but they're just unable to because mm-hmm. they can't inherently. And then as a result of that, people can also develop this shame injury over time. Yeah, I think an underlying theme of what you're saying here is the deceptive nature of our experience. And it's something we've touched on many times throughout this podcast. But you're describing effectively how an underlying foundation of a shame injury of one kind or another from one source or another can then serve as the basis for a house of negative emotions that's built on top of that foundation that may or may not seem obviously related to that initial shame injury where you know you get effectively quote unquote triggered by something where and that the thing that's triggering you may be only kind of peripherally related to the initial thing that caused you the shame injury and yet inside your mind the two become conflated and the one builds the other and i think that that's part of the challenge and in, in sort of what we're doing here with trying to investigate these emotions and find good ways to interact with them both more positively and hopefully over time heal them is that it's often a little bit unclear where the sources of our suffering come from. Yeah, that's so wise for us. And you remind me of two other big sources of shame or inadequacy in mm-hmm. people. One is being bullied mm-hmm. or being picked on generally or um, scapegoated or being that pariah kid Mm -hmm. and related to that, being targeted by discrimination and prejudice. Mm -hmm. It can be a kind of an internalized sense that I'm just not as good as other people. Yeah. Another, a second, I said two, a second major source of shame is a situation sometimes where a person as a kid really did do something bad. Mm. They did it bad. They did a bad thing as a 10 year old or a six year old or a 16 year old but they're still carrying that around 30 years later. Mm, mm -hmm. And that's another source of shame injury. And then last, there's a classic one. So it's called moral injury, which is an issue sometimes for people in combat situations, vets coming back, or people who work in frontline situations that you're around just terrible stuff. Nobody could have prevented it in the moment. Mm. Um, You you couldn't have prevented it in the moment. It just was going to happen. And yet there can be a sense of a kind of, that you're sort of traumatized by what you saw, even though, and somehow you feel guilty about it maybe, even though it really wasn't your fault. Yeah, absolutely. So for somebody who may have experienced a shame injury or possibly several shame injuries of varying degrees, what are some of the things that we can do as adults to better recognize the impact that these underlying injuries might be having on us? And then over time, hopefully to heal and reduce their impact. Yeah. First, I think what you said there about recognize them is really important. Mm. It's fundamental because running through the th- all of these examples is that shame is an inappropriate reaction. It's an excessive, mm. out of proportion, mm-hmm. unfortunate. It's normal, but inappropriate. And people are still 
carrying the price, bearing the load 10, 20, 30, 40 Yeah, that's a great later. point. Yeah. And so your great point really about identifying the disconnect between what's worth carrying and what's inappropriate to be burdened by day in and day out is really, 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 really useful. And part of what supports that are developing things we've talked about, uh, like feeling, getting on your own side, being a friend to yourself, treating yourself like you matter, compassion for yourself in addition to compassion for other people, and a kind of vigor, a kind of muscularity inside in standing up against those residues left in you, or maybe those in, internalized oppressors or inner voices that bedevil you today. So that's really, really key. Then I think it's so helpful when we're in a situation today in which feelings of inadequacy or fault, let's say, uh, start arising, maybe old feelings of shame. Try to stop the movie for a moment and ask yourself, okay, what's appropriate here? How bad was it what I did? Was it really bad at all? Is there some correction, some skillfulness, some lesson to be learned here, distinct from having to carry a lot of guilt about this? Or is this a nothing? And it's really they who are out of line and I can just keep on going. Mm -hmm. I think that I had a kind of funny saying come to my mind recently, this, I'm going to use a swear word in a moment, get ready. And I was just thinking about a situation <laughs> I was in where I was just wounded and hurt by how I'd been treated by some people. And I just thought to myself, it's funny that history teaches us two things, that people can be shitty and people can be noble choose noble, mm -hmm. you know? And just because other people are upset with you doesn't mean that you did a bad thing. And sometimes it's wise to just recognize that other people, for whatever reason, are doing their thing. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Occasionally, there might be a place for healthy remorse. Feel the remorse. We talk a lot about this in our chapter on forgiveness and um, chapter on generosity and resilient, the book, and the section on forgiveness. It's okay to feel the fault, feel it, acknowledge fault, make amends as best you can, learn the lesson, move on. That's really, really important. And then I think it's very important to internalize experiences again and again and again that are the opposite of what might've happened for you as a little kid mm -hmm. or an older kid. Experiences in which you do exist for other people, they do see you, they are willing to open their minds and their hearts to you and to be affected by you. They may not be perfect about it, especially in adulthood. Perfect attunement and rapport are unrealistic in adulthood. Mm -hmm. Relationships, as you said for us, in adulthood are an ongoing process of repair. There's no way around it, so let's repair well. But we can take in again and again experiences of feeling cherished and special mm -hmm. and beautiful and, and good. That's one reason why I think one of the biggest gifts we, we can give to others is to see the good in them. And when people give us those gifts, oh, they're so important to take in and to open our arms to and, and wrap our arms around. That's really important. And then the last thing I'll just say here about um, the whole shame thing is to, this is sort of an advanced practice, but why not, to explore the territory. If it's meaningful for you, that's really beyond shame and worth. Mm. It's beyond good or bad. It's where you have more and more of a sense of being a person process that's both material and mental, 
mental being immaterial, a body-mind process unfolding, entwined with very, very diffuse boundaries with lots of other beings and lots of other forces in the present moment prior to the formation of concepts like good or bad, shameful or worthy. And in that present moment awareness that has a really strong sense of, of beingness, the sense of shame kind of falls away, but also the sense of being worthy or confident also falls away. And you're just in the present. And that's a really powerful exploration for people too. I think those are wonderful recommendations. And they're certainly really, really great places to begin with. And for the last one, maybe even to end with when it comes to unwinding a shame injury of one kind or another. I just want to make a note here for a second. Those are wonderful techniques for managing all levels of shame injury, in my opinion. But there is a highest level of shame injury that really goes into the territory of a truly traumatic experience. And when you've had a trauma of one kind or another and are profoundly triggered by a certain kind of material related to that trauma, sometimes even touching it lightly in the manner that one would probably have to to start engaging some of these practices can itself be too painful. It can be too much to bear in the moment. And so I would just like to note that we'll probably do more content related to managing trauma and unwinding from trauma in future episodes. We've actually made reference to it in previous episodes as well. You're welcome to go back through the library. But I just wanted to kind of plant a flag in that here and say that that's kind of another conversation entirely that is more than worthy of one or several full episodes. So while we could do a cursory treatment of it at the end here, I think that in some ways that would be insufficient and therefore we're going to save that for a later time. Okay, so that's it for today's episode. Today we spoke about shame and we talked about the various ways that a shaming experience, particularly one that lands on us in childhood, can impact our lives today. You spent a little bit of time describing how shame enters us, both on the hereditary level and as children through a variety of different experiences with caregivers of various kinds. No caregiver is perfect, and even the good enough parent can have moments where a child feels neglected in a variety of different kinds of ways. Often, this isn't even the caregiver's fault, as children are notoriously incessantly needy, and there's almost always going to be a moment at some point in our childhoods when we are neglected on some level or another, if even for a moment. Those experiences carry lasting imprints into our future experience, into our later life and often can create situations where very, very minor experiences of negativity can really land on us like a ton of bricks. And it's valuable for us to start going through a process of untangling from these shame injuries as we evolve into our late teens and our early 20s and later into adulthood, as it can really improve our quality of life over time. You described a variety of different kinds of shame injuries that might come at us through a variety of different angles. And then at the end, described a number of ways and a number of techniques that we can use to start to untangle ourselves from shame in our lives. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a comment, leave a rating, and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. I don't know, maybe even tell a friend. It really does honestly help us out, and we very much appreciate it. Next week, we'll be speaking with Dr. Chris Germer, 
about self-compassion and how we can heal feelings related to shame. So until next time, thanks for listening. 